Let's go ahead and get started here uh, tonight. Uh, before anybody asks, I was informed today that uh, one of our techs was on vacation last week into the first part of this week. So last, year, last week's recording was not posted until today. So, but I was told it is posted. Also, a number of you asked about if we had copies of chapter 7 here tonight. We do not. Uh, we've had some sickness go through the office, and this has been like a, a crazy week in there trying to get everything ready even for tonight. But when we meet in two weeks, remember, we're not meeting next Wednesday night. Uh, I've had experience once of uh, holding a Bible study on Wednesday night. It was at a previous church, and I had a crowd of total one person who showed up. And she informed me that if I thought she was going to sit there and listen to me unload on her all night, that I was crazy because she had cooking to do, and she was going to be at home like all the other ladies were at home, getting ready for Thanksgiving. So we are not going to meet next Wednesday night, but we'll be back the following Wednesday night, and we'll have some of Chapter 7's notes here as well. Uh, also, if uh, some of you were asking me about other chapters, notes, let me just say, if you need the notes to another chapter, send me an email at the office, and I'll see that that chapter is here for you when we meet in two weeks, so that you can have that, uh, and we'll uh, take care of it then. And hopefully this week's lesson will get posted uh, right away. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your blessings to us. Pray that you would be with us tonight as we uh, walk through this part of your word. We ask that you would give us understanding. We pray, Father, that you would uh, help us to discern and rightly divide what the scriptures are saying. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, we want to do just a, a quick review to bring you up because for the first time we ended like in the middle of a chapter, and we didn't get all the way through chapter 7, so we want to go back, do a quick review, see if there are any questions to that point. Uh, Carl, I'm going to ask you if again, if you'll be my, uh, uh, I guess it's not a map, but uh, take the the chart there, and if someone, Steve, if you would get it on this side, and just as I'm talking about it, kind of walk around with it, uh, because I realized once we had these printed, they weren't large enough for you to be able to see. Old Neb there, both sides, you can all see Neb and make him out, but there's a whole lot more detail here that relates to what we're seeing. So you remember... Daniel is being given a vision and dreams of what kingdoms are going to come to pass in the future. We have to remember, at the time Daniel is writing this, all of this is future. The only kingdom that someone would know about historically at the time that Daniel is writing is the Babylonian kingdom. Because Daniel is in Babylon. 
That is one of the reasons this book is attacked by critics of the Bible. Because they would say nobody could know the things that Daniel is talking about, the things that are being revealed in this book. Well, nobody can know unless you believe in the supernatural. And you believe in a God who knows all things. So if we go back to chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had his dream. In his dream, he saw the kingdoms of the future. That, and when his dream is interpreted to him, the head is Babylon. The top part of the body is what kingdom? The Medes and the Persians, which are followed by what kingdom? The Greeks, which are followed by what kingdom? And that Roman Empire we see is going to be in different stages, represented by the two legs, then the feet and the toes, uh, the ten toes there. And the feet and the toes are made up of a mixture of iron and clay. So that final kingdom is going to come out. Nebuchadnezzar in his dream also saw a giant stone that was not cut out by hands. It comes and this is important that you remember this. When it hits the uh, image, where does it hit it at? On its feet. It doesn't hit it on the top and smash it. It hits it on its feet, and the whole thing crumbles, is, goes away, and the rock grows and fills the whole earth. And we know that the rock is Christ, and we know that that's the messianic kingdom for the future. So... In this case, we see the kingdoms, they're made, it's, it's very impressive, very impressive. And these metals that it is made out of, we are seeing this from man's perspective of how impressive these kingdoms are. Uh, you'll remember it from the next chapter that Nebuchadnezzar decides that he's going to change what God has decreed, and he builds his image, he builds it all out of gold, as if to say, no, the Babylonian kingdom's going to last forever, and God has to humble King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Now we come over to chapter 8, and Daniel has some dreams and visions, and you'll, you'll remember the statue comes in a dream given to a pagan king. So everything looks impressive. But in Daniel's dream, what does he see? He sees four beasts. Now we're looking at it from God's perspective. These are four wild animals. And the first is what? A lion with wings on it. Once again, it's representing Babylon, the first of the kingdoms. Uh, second, what does he see? A bear. A bear comes up out of the, the sea. And the bear is raised up on one side. And the bear has three ribs in its, its paws, basically, that it's chowing down on. Like the men will chow down tomorrow night on the ribs here. For the, for the men's study. If you didn't know they were serving ribs tomorrow, men, I just gave you a preview. Come out. They'll be serving ribs tomorrow uh, night. Okay. And, and so we have the bear. What follows the bear? The four-headed leopard. And then what follows that? 
a giant beast that looks more like a dinosaur than it looks like any, and it's very terrifying. It's very different, Daniel says, from all the other beasts, and that represents the Roman Empire. You remember there are 10 horns that come up that correspond to the 10 toes on the statue, and then you have the little horn that comes up that replaces the other, that replaces three of those horns. Okay, with that said, let's jump in at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. So Daniel, by what he sees, is very upset, and this is very troubling. Uh, What he has seen is like a nightmare to him. Verse 16, as for, verse 16, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So Daniel approaches an angel. Remember, after seeing the beast, he then had the the vision, uh, the dream of the Ancient of Days and of the Son of Man and of all the angels. And so he, he approaches one of them. And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation. So Daniel is asking for what does this mean, and the angel says he'll give him the interpretation. Verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. The four beasts that rise out of the earth are four kings. In verses 2 and 3, it's said that the beasts came out of the sea. Here it says, out of the earth. Both are correct. Coming out of the sea highlights that they are Gentile kings or kingdoms. Remember we talked about the meaning of the sea. It either refers to the Mediterranean Sea or it refers to the peoples, the Gentile nations. So coming out of the sea would highlight that they are Gentile kings or kingdoms, and out of the earth shows that they are human and not divine kingdoms. So some people say, well, the sea, there's a mistake in Daniel. One place it says they came out of the sea. The other place it says they came out of the earth. No, it's true of both of them. They both have significance that they're talking about, which is different from one another. The four kingdoms that Daniel saw are the same four kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar saw. The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. Verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. In verses 13 and 14... It states that the Son of Man would receive the kingdom. Yet here it states that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. 
Both statements are correct. The term for saints means holy ones. The Aramaic word holy appears 13 times in Daniel. Six times it refers to saints, and three times it refers to angelic beings. It would seem that the holy ones should be understood as believers from all ages. The kingdom is forever and would include the millennium and the eternal state. So when it says, you notice the language there that this kingdom will be forever and forever and ever. So it being received by the holy ones, remember during the millennium, we rule and reign with Christ. You know, our, our position here during the millennium will be we are on earth reigning with him. So the fact that the kingdom is Christ's kingdom, and yet the kingdom is also received by the holy ones would refer to those of us who will be reigning with Christ forever. Verse 19, then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devour and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Right, so in verse 19, we have Daniel desiring more information about this fourth beast due to it being different from the other beasts. You recognize how different this is from the other beasts, right? In the description of what Daniel sees, uh, it's easy to recognize the three other beasts as something that he would know about as wild animals. What he sees in this fourth beast is terrifying to him because he's never seen anything like this before. And so Daniel, just like you and I, would want to know, hey, let's talk about that fourth beast. I've never seen anything like it at, at all. So what's the meaning of this fourth uh, beast? Verse 20 and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. So, okay, Daniel saying, in addition to wanting to know about this beast, he wants to know specifics about this beast as well. Because remember, what did he see? He saw a little horn that came up that displaced three of them. And this little horn had eyes. And this little horn had a mouth that spoke. And notice he says here, Daniel says, it seemed to be greater than any of its companions, referring to the other horns that were on this fourth beast. Verse 21, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So Daniel is saying in his vision, in the dreams that he had, this little horn fought against the saints. Now, from Daniel's perspective, 
who would he regard as the saints? Right. The true Jewish followers of God. That's his reference point of who would be the saints. So he sees this little horn fighting with and being able to overcome the saints, the followers of God. Verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. The victory over the saints goes on until the Ancient of Days came, and then the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Now, the terminology saints there, Daniel's perspective would be looking at that as primarily Jewish people, but we've already seen that because the kingdom goes on forever and ever and ever, and from other passages that we know about, the saints at that point in time will include not only Jewish believers, but also Gentile believers, because they're the ones who are going to possess the kingdom. Verse 23, thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. So the, explain, the angel explains to Daniel that there would be a fourth kingdom which would be different from the other three kingdoms. It would devour the whole earth. What made it different from all preceding empires was its policy of imperialism. When Babylon conquered other nations, it did not install Babylonians as rulers. Instead, the empire selected leaders from among the subjugated populations and placed them under its control. This historical fact is demonstrated by the conquest of Judah. When Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, he chose Gedaliah, a Jew, to rule over that province of Judah rather than a Babylonian. And there's a reference there in Jeremiah that shows that that is truly what happened. The Medo-Persians adhered to the same strategy. When they conquered a nation, they did not appoint Medes or Persians to rule its subjects, but rather chose leaders from among the defeated country. Zerubbabel is a historical example related to Israel. He was appointed Israel's governor by the Medes and Persians. And you can check that out in the passages that are listed there. Nehemiah is a second example from Nehemiah 5, verses 1 to 9. Although they were Jews, Zerubbabel and Nehemiah ruled under Medo-Persian authority. The Greeks utilized the same method. Under Hellenistic rule in Israel, the Jewish high priest became the ruler of Judah. All of this, however, changed when the Romans conquered the known world. As soon as a nation was vanquished, the empire would install a Roman native as the country's new 
ruler. So understand what's being talked about here. Right? The fourth beast is different from the other three, right? It's more vicious. Uh, it's, it's terrifying to look at. Well, one of the things that made that so with the Roman Empire was the way that they would rule people that they defeated. Starting with the Babylonians, the, if the Babylonians defeated you, they would choose one of your rulers and put him in charge of the area, but he would be responsible to the Babylonian king. The same thing happened with the Medes and the Persians. The same thing happened with the Greeks. But along come the Romans, and what do they do that's different? They put their own people in. We can't trust these people that we've defeated, and we want to keep them under our thumb. Uh, because if you appoint a ruler from their own people, for the most part, they're going to be more sympathetic to the people, right? Someone who is a Roman, who is his total allegiance to? To Rome. And so it's going to result in a more harsh type of rule. That's one of the things that made Rome different from the other kingdoms, is the harshness with which they treated people, the harshness with which they defeated people, and the harshness with which they ruled over the people. Verse 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. Okay, now we're getting into the explanation of the ten horns. Out of this kingdom, so sometimes people say, why is the view that the final world government is going to flow out of the ancient Roman Empire? Well, right here you have the explanation for that. It is out of this kingdom are going to flow ten kings. And so basically, let's keep in mind, when we're thinking of ten, we're thinking of ten rulers that are coming. Now, they are clearly ruling simultaneously, these ten kings, because three of them are put down by another one which shall arise. So we, we go and we see out of the ten horns, the little horn comes up, it displaces three of them. To displace the three, it's showing that the other seven are still there. So they're all these, it's talking about a time when these ten kings are all reigning uh, together. Verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High. Who's the he? The little horn. The little horn. He shall speak words against the Most High 
and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand. The horn that arises, this little horn that arises, will speak blasphemy against God. He will change laws and will persecute the saints, and they will be given into his hand. The persecution will be for a time, times, and half a time. Did you catch that at the end of verse 25? A time, times, and half a time. Here the word time would mean years. So a time is one year, times is two years, and a half time would be a half year, which if you graduated from your math class, adds up to what? Three and a half years. Now, this is confirmed for us by the book of Revelation in uh, And in just a second, let me find this. And one of the things that I would say is important, we cannot really understand. Oh, I must have left that. Yeah, All right, let's go over to Revelation chapter 11. Just keep your finger here and go over to Revelation chapter 11. I had these verses printed out and left them in my office. So, To truly understand the book of Revelation and to truly understand the book of Daniel, these two books are companion books to one another. All right, so we, we've, we've seen a time, a times, and half a time, right? Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for how long? How long is 42 months? And verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, if I were to tell you that the Jewish year has 360 days in it, and not 365 uh, like our years do, that would equal how much time? Three and a half years. Uh, if we go over to chapter 13, 
in verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for how long? Which is how long? Must be a tremendous coincidence that these timelines just all line up with one another, right? No, it's no coincidence at all. So the book of Revelation confirms that what we're talking about here, because the word times, you know, a time, times and half a times, a time means a period of time doesn't necessarily mean a year. It is a, a, it is a word that is defined by its context. And we know from the context of the book of Revelation, bringing this back here, and the months and the years and the days, that it all equals out to three and a half years. That's why we would come back to this passage and say it equals three and a half years years. Verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Verse 26 speaks to the fact that the little horn will be judged and destroyed. Among conservative Christian scholars, many consider the little horn to be the Antichrist. The following summary reflects the majority dispensational view regarding what will happen in connection with Daniel 7.25. So we're going to give you an overview of what I believe is, is happening here and what we're told. The Antichrist will conquer three of the ten kingdoms during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, we see with the opening of the tribulation period, we see a rider on a white horse, conquering he shall conquer. I believe that is a reference to the Antichrist that's being talked about here. At that time, Israel is protected from war, by a covenant signed with the Antichrist. We'll be getting to that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Midway through the tribulation, however, Antichrist will invade Jerusalem, desecrate the tribulational temple, and change the times and law by putting an end to sacrifice and offering. The Antichrist will then wage war against the Jewish people during the final three and a half years of the tribulation. He will blaspheme God and persecute the Jews. The period of three and a half years mentioned in Daniel 7.25 is therefore the second half of the tribulation, as will be seen in the discussion of verse 27. The period will culminate in the second coming of the Messiah. So let's finish the last two verses here, and then I'll take some questions. Uh, verse 27. 
And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So verse 27 describes the kingdom being given to the saints, and this will be the eternal kingdom. The conclusion, Daniel concludes the account of his visions, stating the three effects they had on him. He continues to be troubled. You think this is a lot to lay on him? There's a lot in here to be understood, right? And just imagine you've just seen this in a dream, and what we'd probably call a nightmare, most of us. Uh, Two, his appearance is changed. Uh, Daniel's probably as white as can be, as pale as can be. And he just can't get over what he's seen. He keeps these matters in his heart. And that's the end of this vision and these dreams that are connected uh, with it. So any questions related to this, just what we've covered here? I don't want to go into questions about anything else because I want to be able to keep on moving and going into the next chapter. But if there's something you don't understand, now's the time to ask. So between verses 24, 5, and 6, we leap from... Roman rule all the way to prophetic. Exactly. Now, hang on just a second, though. Okay, because Nero's coming to mind. At, at the time that this is written, all of this is future. Remember, it's not Daniel relating what's going on in his day. I mean, the Roman Empire has not even come about yet. So Daniel is being revealed to him, looking down through time. And one of the things that kind of troubles people at time is, well, man, it just seems like you've got the Babylonian kingdom, and immediately after that, you have the Medes and Persians. Immediately after that, you have the Greeks. Immediately after that, you have the Romans. And then... There seems to be, when we come to the end there, in the Nebuchadnezzar's vision, there seems to be a long period of time, a a huge gap that's going on, before we get to this final form of the kingdom. So, one of the things we need to recognize, and this is just a principle of prophecy in general from the Bible. When the prophets are looking out in to the future. They, they're looking at something a long ways away. Typically, it's explained in this way. If you're driving out west 
you, you look out and you see before you what looks like a magnificent mountain. But the closer you get, what do you begin to recognize? It's not one mountain, but it's a mountain range. And there are huge valleys in between those mountains that you can't see from afar off. God gives the prophets views of the future. That is why, for instance, when it relates to the coming of Christ, the Jewish people could not see a suffering Savior. Because as they looked into the future, what are they seeing? They're seeing a king that is going to rule and is going to reign. So they don't know how to deal with Isaiah chapter 53. So and to this day, they don't know how to deal with that. Most of them all oh, that's referring to the suffering of the nation, not of the suffering, where we would say it's the suffering of Christ and we would talk about it. So one of the things that, that is common in other prophecies as well in the Bible, it doesn't mean that chronologically they're going to follow immediately, one after another after another. And one of the criticisms of, the, of interpreting this passage of Scripture is, yeah, we've got something that is separating the last form of the kingdom from the other. So we see it, especially in the the vision of the wild beasts. He sees the wild beast. The wild beast has what? Ten horns. But then there's a horn that comes up and replaces three of those horns, that little horn. So it doesn't mean it's going to happen just like in consecutive order with no gaps in between it. Does that help? Kind of, but Rome fell under Nero. Right? Uh, Rome fell, but Rome is going to be, I believe, uh, reinstituted in a final form. So the reason, it's not going to look exactly like the Roman Empire looked, because when we come to the, the feet of the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, the legs are made of what? Iron. Iron. The feet and the toes are made out of what? Clay. Iron, and clay. Iron and clay. And because with the vision of the beasts, we see clearly that there are four kingdoms that are coming in the future. Because that's the vision given to Daniel. So when you put these two visions together, we are able to see that this final kingdom is going to have different forms. And so the one form right now, there is no Roman Empire. But out of that Roman Empire will come this final world empire. Now, we will see that more readily when we move into Daniel chapter 9, where we have the prophecy there of the 70 weeks, and we are informed that this person who is coming in the future who would be the little horn he's from the people of those who put Christ to death in Jerusalem 
which would be the Romans. That's why we say it's coming out of the ancient Roman Empire. There's a lot of pieces to put together there. But you made the statement about the millennium that believers who had died, church, church saints, will participate in the millennium. And I, so where, where do you get the, is that just like statements in First Thessalonians? Because it seems to be fairly vague, you know, that maybe we're going to come back with Christ but then you have the problem of, are we going to have glorified bodies? People in the millennium are going to have physical bodies. How do you reconcile all of that? Okay. Oh, that's a real easy question. That we just, okay. All right. All right. Part, part of what we, we have to deal with the passages where we are told that we are going to rule and reign with Christ as well as believers. So the question is, when are we going to rule and reign with Christ? So we have, uh, as, as far as it would relate to, we have those passages where Jesus talked about to his disciples that they were going to sit on 12 thrones and rule with him. So, and in, in, in some way I'm putting this together with even the passage we talked about Sunday uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There comes a point, which I believe is at the end of the millennium, when Satan is finally defeated, thrown into the lake of fire, that Christ is then takes that kingdom and gives it to his father, and it says God is all in all. So I would place our ruling and reigning with Christ during that millennium reign. So what does that mean for us? Because all right, who, someone earlier before we started tonight asked me the question about during the millennium. You know, who, who's here during the millennium? I believe based on Matthew chapter 25, the judgment of the nations, there he separates the sheep from the goats, that it is only the sheep that go into the millennium reign. So at the beginning of the thousand years, Everyone that enters that kingdom of Christ will be saved people. No lost people. They, they will be separated out and they will go immediately to judgment. Now, during that time, we know in the perfect environment that's going to be on the earth, which I believe is going to take us back like to the, the way it was during the Garden of Eden, people are going to live long lifetimes. Uh, because we, uh, there's a passage that talks about even someone that's like 100 years old is still going to be like a youth. So that means, you know, if we go back pre-flood, people lived long lifetimes, right? And people were having children when they're four, 500, 600 years old. So think of that type of environment back on the earth and the earth being populated with all these people. But all these people being born all have a sin nature because that hasn't been eradicated yet for them. 
because the people entering into the millennium, at least one group of the people entering into the millennium, are going to be people who survived through the tribulation period and were saved, but they still don't have glorified bodies. Now, to your question, I believe that those of us who have already gone in the church and the Old Testament saints during the millennium are also going to be here on the earth, ruling with Christ, only we'll be in our glorified bodies. So here on the earth, you'll have people in unglorified bodies and people in glorified bodies. And if that's enough to blow your mind, uh, it is fine. We also know, and I'll just throw this out more so you can really think either uh, that's something to think about or you're going to think, what a heretic. (laughs) All right, so... Heaven, when we typically think about it, we think about the New Jerusalem. It is after the millennium that the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven and rests on the earth. We know as believers that our home, you know, we we have the nations of the Old Testament You have Israel that has promised land, promised to them by God. We know that David is going to rule on his throne, and Christ is going to rule on the throne of David. All of that's going to happen during the millennium kingdom. Heaven hasn't come down yet, so the church, which is the bridegroom of Christ, will be with Christ in heaven, yet we rule and reign with him here on earth. I believe that the new Jerusalem will be like a satellite circling the earth during the millennium period. And those of us who are glorified will come back and forth from the new Jerusalem to earth, sort of like in the Star Wars, no, Star Wars, what? Uh, Star Trek, I get to, I never watched either of them. But I watched enough to know that beam me up, Scotty. Indeed, so... uh, uh, so, from, from what I've read, and, and look, I'm not an expert in all of this, this stuff, but I feel that's how those pieces fit together. So that on earth, you've got people in unglorified bodies who are saved. You have people in unglorified bodies who are born during that period of time, who are lost because they were born with sin natures and they refuse to come to Christ, rebel against him, even in a perfect environment. You have the Old Testament saints ruling and reigning. You've got the apostles ruling and reigning. And you've got the members of the church ruling and reigning with Christ here on earth. And that all... Now, there's lots of gaps in that. There's lots of questions. And look, I'm not saying that I would go to the stake and burn at the stake for my view that the new Jerusalem will, will circle the earth and that. I'm not that certain of it. But that's kind of from my study of prophecy and reading of, of other guys. That would be how I would fit the pieces together. So we, we have Christ ruling, and, and Daniel's seeing bits and pieces of 
this and striving to understand what he's saying. That's the best I can answer that. Now, let's stay focused on Daniel tonight. (laughs) And what's there? Before we do that, can I ask? (laughs) You can ask, but I might not answer. (laughs) I had already raised my hand. (laughs) It seems like there's going to potentially be another group within the millennium, and that would be those who are born in the time of the millennium but that who can become saved? Yes, there, there is. And put Those faith. who enter the millennium are all saved. Right. They will have children. Right. Their children will have, just, just like their parents will, because they're not in glorified bodies, they are, they're going to have a sin nature, yeah. so they can choose to rebel against God or choose to follow. And they're, we, we know... Because at the end of the millennium, when Satan is loosed, he's able to get a whole great big multitude to rebel against God. So we know that there are going to be all kinds of people here on the earth during the millennium that are not saved. And the manner of faith might be somewhat different for those people who follow the Lord in that time. Well, they will still be saved by grace through faith. Yeah. Just in, like in every time. Uh, in, in all the time from the beginning. Everyone who's been saved has been saved by grace through faith. Okay? The more I talk, the more questions. <laughs> okay, where were the questions over here? I saw that. Okay. Okay, other than the fact that the Bible explains its own self how do you know that time and times is double not tripled or quadrupled or whatever except half a time you came down to a half a year well I think the way that we would come to that would be why we would be certain of the interpretation of that would be going to revelation and 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 dealing with it that, Bible that would be, I think, Bible. those references in the book of Revelation, which are corresponding to this, okay. are making it clear that that's three and a half years that are going on. And I just think that's the way that it would be said in the Aramaic as well. Time, times would be double time. Okay. And, that, and, and then time. half a time and not triple time. Okay. And look, I am not a language expert to where I could say that dogmatically. Uh, I can check into that, but I, from, from what I've read, times would mean double the first. So when one, math, two. Two and a half, if I were Jewish, that. Huh? If I hadn't read the New Testament, two and a half might be. Well, it would be, it has to be at least three and a half. Remember, the word time doesn't in and of itself mean year. That's an interpretation that it is year. But whatever that time is, it's one plus two plus a half. Now, whether it's months, years, weeks, 
that the word times isn't telling us that. We have to interpret that based on other scriptures to come to three and a half. Okay. And well, and later when we get on into the book of Daniel, there'll be some other things that will show this as well, that this is the correct interpretation. Okay. So my question is where it talks about the saints will be handed over to him. And you talked about that being the Jews right. or is that just believers? Is this because. Right. Now, I would say, first of all, if we're looking at it from the context of Daniel, who would, you know, as Daniel is writing this. To him, the saints are the true followers of God, who in the context time-wise would be the Jewish people, would be those true believers among the Jews. Now, we know, and if we go on in the rest of it and put that together, that when the kingdom comes, it's not coming just to the Jewish people, but it's also coming to all believers in Christ, so it would represent all of them. But from Daniel's mindset at that point, he would probably understand it to refer to Jewish people and those proselytes who would have also put their faith in Jehovah. So, so this would be before or after the rapture? Where's the timeline? This, what we're talking about here would be after the rapture. Okay. The, the events of the saints being persecuted and stuff is during the tribulation period. Uh, just, to, just to clarify, uh, the three and a half years we're talking about in Daniel, is that the last three and a half years of the tribulation? Yes. Going back to... Uh, the millennium and us reigning with Christ. Um, is Are we going to be like visible to the other people or in our glorified bodies, are we like not there and, and reigning in the background? Does that make sense? <laughs> you will be seen. All right. Sunday we're going to talk about the resurrection body from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so I'm going to reserve all comments on the resurrection body until Sunday morning. If you want to know, show up on Sunday morning. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, because the Apostle Paul, we're, we're right at that point where it just happens. Paul is talking about the resurrection body and what the resurrection body will be like. And so I'll talk about that on Sunday. But you will be seen. The resurrection body is not invisible. No. You you're gonna be. <laughs> you're not gonna be transparent until you decide that you want to be seen. <laughs> We're not. We'll talk about the resurrection body on Sunday.
On um, page 30 of the notes um, where it talks about the Antichrist um, will conquer, and then the second statement is, at that time, Israel will be protected from war by a covenant is signed with the Antichrist, which is from 927, Daniel 927. When I look at 927, it says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of that week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And the wing of abomination will be one who makes desolate, even until the complete destruction one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. My question is this. When he talks about the Antichrist signing a covenant with Jerusalem or the Jews, correct? Correct. Okay. Then at what point did that really happen? When we get to Daniel chapter 9, I'll be glad to answer that question. <laughs> uh, we, 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 will, we will deal with all of that timing when we get to chapter 9. I, I, we got chapter 8 to get to. And, and what I was going to say, if you wait about three and a half weeks, or three weeks, we'll probably get there. If you wait a time and times... Uh, <laughs> And maybe half a time uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, uh, but at the rate we're going with questions, we, it may be a time, times, times, and another time. Speaking of times, time, times, and a half a time, um, you gave us an example. This is really good, though, in case it can be used both ways. You gave an example as Revelation 11, 3, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will blah, 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 blah. That is the first half of the trip, correct? Because they are taken up in a rapture in the middle of the trip, and that's when all heck breaks loose. So that would be the first half. Yeah, with, without going uh, through that, because there is all kinds of disagreement as far as when the two witnesses, whether they are ministering during the first half or the second half of the tribulation. I personally believe they are ministering during the first half of the tribulation because that seems to fit with the timeline of everything else. And so, but that, that's an issue in and of itself. It, yeah, it still gives three and a half years. Yes, it still gives you the three and a half years, but both periods are three and a half. Believe me, there are all kinds of papers and everything else written on disagreement as to when the two witnesses uh, minister. But, okay. All right. Are we ready to? All right. It says Daniel uh, kept these matters in his heart. But at some point, he must have written it down, yes? Well, the fact that he kept them in his heart doesn't mean he didn't write them down. Okay. It, it's, it's just, I, when it says that he kept them in his heart, it's talking about they continue to trouble him. He, they, you know, I don't think we can underestimate for Daniel the terror that this fourth beast brought to him and what he was seeing happening, 
with the, th the three horns uh, being displaced by the one. I mean, when's the last time you saw a horn with eyes? And you heard it speaking. So, uh, you know, there, there's... This terrifies him. And he's also seeing what also terrifies him. It is clear to him that this person who is this horn, because we're told they're kings, that this king has power over his people. And that this, he's persecuting Daniel's people. And so this, this terrifies him. And he's contemplating this in his heart. Okay, we're ready to go into chapter 8, where it doesn't get any easier. Chapter 8 to the end of the book is concerning Israel during the time of the Gentiles. Daniel's vision concerns the empires of Persians and Greece as it relates to Israel. Now, so far, the focus has been on the Gentile nations, right? Now there's kind of a turn. We'll still be talking about Gentile nations, but we'll really be talking about them in reference to God's people, Israel. Right. Start with verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. I'm sure Daniel goes, not again. <laughs> After that which appeared to me at the first. So this is another vision. This is not a continuation of the previous one. This is another vision. I saw in the vision... And when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Right. The vision occurs during the third year of King Belshazzar. This would be 551 B.C. This is 12 years before Belshazzar's feast in chapter 5. In the vision, Daniel is transported to Susa, a city in Iran. Susa would have been in the Persian Empire. Daniel finds himself transported to a town little known at that time, and no one would have imagined it was destined to be the capital of Persia and the setting of the book of Esther. Right. Verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So Daniel sees a ram. The ram has two horns 
And one horn is higher or larger than or longer than the other. Verse 20, look over to verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. All right, so the passage interprets what he's seeing, right? So verse 20 tells us that the horns are the Medo-Persian Empire. The reason one horn is higher or longer than the other is because even though both Media and Persia were powerful kingdoms, Persia was more powerful than the Medes. Daniel mentioned the higher horn came up last because before Persia came upon the scene, Media was already a major power. Persia would be modern-day Iran. Uh, the ram is the third symbol of the Medo-Persian Empire. In chapter 2, it is pictured as the chest and arms of silver. And in chapter 7, it is pictured as a lopsided bear. So what we need to recognize here, the Medes and the Persians are being talked about here. But we now have the third uh, image that's being used to describe them. They were described originally in Nebuchadnezzar's dream as what? All right, the, the chest made out of silver. In Daniel's previous dream, he saw the Medes and Persians as what? A bear, the lopsided bear. Once again, see the consistency be, between both accounts. One horn longer than the other, the bear was lopsided. Okay. And now he sees them as a ram. Daniel sees the ram expanding in three directions, to the west, north, and south. Remember in Daniel's vision, none of these things have happened. Once again, at the time Daniel is writing this, he's still during the time where the Babylonians are ruling. Now, having seen these visions that we've, we've, we've talked about here, can you understand how Daniel with certainty can say to King Belshazzar when the handwriting's on the wall that your kingdom has been displaced and it's now going to the, to the Medes and the Persians? Because Daniel's already seen these things. Remember, Daniel is not written in chronological order. It is known from history that the Medo-Persians expanded to the west, defeating the Babylonians, Syria, and Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It expanded to the north, conquering Armenia and Scythia. It expand, its expansion to the south, it defeated Egypt and Ethiopia. The kingdom expanded at will with no one able to stand against it. Daniel 2 and 7 shows that God predetermined how long a kingdom will be in power. When Daniel is writing this, the Babylonian kingdom is still in power. You need to keep that in mind. This is still 
future events at the time that Daniel is writing. All right, verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, so what, what's happening here? As Daniel is considering his vision, he sees a male goat. Literally, the language there means the back of the goat. He sees the back of the goat. And come from the west with such speed that it doesn't touch the ground. And the goat has a prominent horn between its eyes. The goat runs at the ram in powerful anger. The goat breaks off the two horns of the ram. The ram is not powerful enough to stand against the goat. The goat knocks the ram to the ground and tramples it. The goat then becomes great, but at the peak of its power, the great horn is broken, and instead of it, four horns grow toward the four winds of heaven. That's what Daniel saw. So we, we have the ram, and then we have the goat. The ram has two horns. The ram represents what kingdom? The Medo-Persians. Verse 21 reveals that the goat is the Grecian Empire. Look over at verse 21. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. The horn is Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great attacked the Medes and Persians, he came from the west. Alexander the Great was famous for the speed at which he conquered. Now, historically, Alexander was the firstborn son of King Philip II of Macedonia. In a single generation, his father transformed Macedonia from a remote, semi-barbarian kingdom to the leader of Greece. Moreover, Philip II made the Macedonian army the most formidable fighting force in the region. In 336 BC, the king planned the conquest of Persia. However, he was killed that same year. Alexander was only 20 years old when he followed his father on the throne. 
The death of his father sparked rebellions throughout the Macedonian Empire, but Alexander's military prowess and resolve enabled him to quickly crush all opposition. After consolidating his power, Alexander proposed an invasion of Asia Minor and invited his Greek subjects to participate. Although a Macedonian by birth, Alexander had learned the details of Greek philosophy from his tutor Aristotle and had become enamored with it. He developed a strong desire to speak his philosophy among the Greek culture and the Greek language across the globe. Hence, just two years after ascending the throne, he initiated this offensive against Persia. Expositors, both liberal and conservative, have interpreted this verse as representing the untimely death of Alexander and the division of his kingdom into four sections, right? Let's see what, what happens here in verses 9 and 10. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars threw it down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offerings were taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of the transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to those who spoke, For how long is the vision, the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And that is too much for us to get into tonight with the time that is left. And we will pick it up here in two weeks. Okay. So I, I hope you can see why the critics want to discredit the book of Daniel. Because the liberal critics, you know, they're just going to say, as I, I said at the beginning of time, no one could have known these things and predicted these things with the accuracy with which they are predicted. And that's why I'm so glad, you know, when we believe in a God of the supernatural, a lot of these problems go away for us, don't they? When we believe in a God who knows the future as well as the past, these problems just disappear for us. And I would hate, excuse me, to believe in a God who would be so limited that he wouldn't know what was going to happen. That's not our God. We serve not only the omnipotent God, but the omniscient God. And we can, that's why we know we can trust his word. 
And that's why, you know, it, I am puzzled at times, especially when it comes to prophecies about the future beyond us, from people who have trouble seeing them being literally fulfilled when we see so many past prophecies literally fulfilled in the scriptures, just as the way the Bible said they would be. And if they were fulfilled literally, why, why can't we say that the ones that regard the future are going to be fulfilled literally as well? All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Father, once again, that we will handle it carefully. We will divide it rightly. We will apply it to our lives so that we are more than just hearers of the word, but that we are doers of the word. And Father, I just thank you for everyone that's here tonight studying your word. I pray that you will bless them. I pray, Father, that you will help them as they strive to serve you. Bless all that they set their hands to, Lord, and help, uh, help each of us that we might seek to bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.